Now? Good? Um, so we're going to, um, if, if you've not been, uh, if you're a guest or something like that, you, this, this may seem a little strange to you, but the, um, uh, we, we, our pattern is to consistently to go straight to Scripture and to teach directly through the Scripture. Um, and, and so that's normally how we teach week to week, and we've been going through the book of John for a long time. But these, these, um, these couple of weeks, what we're doing is these things are coming from Scripture even though they're not directly quoting Scripture, what we're doing is trying to create the context to help everybody understand Scripture um, better. And so that's how we're looking at the feasts and the festivals these two weeks. So I apologize that we're not going straight to a passage and teaching through it, but at the same time, when we get back to that in a couple of weeks, you're going to see directly, immediately, the fruit of what we've been talking about as we go into to John chapter 7. So um, it's kind of an apology and kind of not. I mean, I, I like better when we get to teach that way, but I think this laying the context, laying the groundwork will be, and will pay off very much so when we get back to it. And again, it's not like this stuff isn't founded in Scripture, the feasts and the festivals from the book of Leviticus, from the book of Numbers, that God commands his people to do that. Um, so anyway, we're teaching these two weeks for that. And listen, we are going to cover in, in about 45 minutes or less all of these, the rest of these, of these feasts which is doing justice to none of them. Um, so if this is something that you're intrigued by, we've given you some resources. Um, John said before, he was like, maybe we need to do an entire series just on this one feast, uh, the Feast of Booths. We could do an entire series on just the Feast of Booths um, easily, which is one of the ones we're going to try to do today in like five to ten minutes. And so, um, so you'll have to forgive that. So I want to open us in prayer because when you go this fast through something, I mean, it increases the chances of confusion or, um, or miscommunication. And I'm going to ask that God will will cover us um, in regards to that today. So um, pray with me, if you will. Father, as we, as we jump back into this conversation of the feasts and festivals that are so, um, man, the teaching here is so rich and it's so deep, and it reminds us how intentionally you're involved in our lives, in our culture, um, how specifically that you are involved in the lives of your people, um, and how you guide us because you love us to make good decisions that are good for us. Um, to remember and to look forward, to be reminded to repent and to celebrate um, your goodness. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look at these today, that in fact you will guide us um, to do that in our own hearts, to look back on your goodness and to look forward to your goodness. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity in your son's name. Amen. All righty. All right. Mr. John. Well, I tell you, the, the first thing we really want to do this morning is we've, uh, if, if we can get it to work, um, I... Being the, the, the history teacher that I am, I love maps, um, and so I love to show maps. And I think for, for me, it helps to have a picture. I'm a visual learner, so when we're talking about a lot of these feasts, we felt like it would be helpful to at least point out to you guys where some of these things are when we talk about the temple, when we talk about the, the, the mount, when we talk about the, the Holy of Holies, the Court of the Gentiles, or, or all of these kind of things. They just kind of go in one area out the other, and we don't really have an, an idea of what we're talking about. Well, for some of these feasts, we felt like it would be very helpful if you actually had a visual picture. And this is a really neat app. I've actually used this with my um, classes. It's called the Virtual New Testament, and it's literally a map of Jerusalem that you can go into virtually and see what it looked like in the first century or an approximation of it. So what you see up there right now is a map of Jerusalem in the upper kind of right-hand corner. You got your pointer? Awesome. So we've got the Temple Mount there in the upper, upper right-hand corner, and it's this massive structure. And then over to the, um, to the uh, west and the south is where most of the city was. And then, of course, over to the east on your right side is uh, what is called the Mount of Olives, okay? 
And so as we dig down into this and we look a little bit closer, what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to go to the Mount of Olives and let you see what this would have looked like, I feel like if Vanna you were, and this is so cool. I feel like Vanna White. <laughs> <laughs> so we're looking now at, uh, this would have been from the Mount of Olives, okay? Looking across the Kidron Valley, this is what you're looking at. That is the Temple Mount. That structure was built at the time of King Herod, okay, this was the second temple that was built. The very large structure in the middle, it looks like it's kind of got a little eyeball on it. That is the actual temple itself. Um, today, uh, you can take a picture from right here now. Mm -hmm. uh, it's covered in grave sites. Uh, there's a road going in front of it and all this kind of stuff, but that, that's what you're looking at there, okay? So we're gonna go get a little bit closer look. We're gonna go up on top of uh, the structure to the left, and we're gonna look down. We are looking down from the area that is referred to as the pinnacle. So if you've ever, you know, if you, the, the passage right where, the and, and you can see it across the way over there. That area right there is called the pinnacle. Uh, and that is where when we read about Jesus being taken up onto the pinnacle of the temple and being tempted by Satan, that's the area we're talking about. And yep. if you look down, you can see why it was referred to as a, as a high place. You know, throw yourself down. It was a really, really tall structure. So you're looking down on the city. We wanted to make sure you guys understood that whenever we're talking about a, fest, a festival or a feast where all these people are coming to the city, literally there are accounts of upwards of three million pilgrims coming into the city. And that might seem um, like not possible, but look at how large the structure is. You're looking down on one of the main entryways into the Temple Mount, those steps down there. We actually stood on those steps. Those have been excavated. We actually, when we went to Israel two years ago, we actually, you can stand on those actual steps today. You can't get into the temple. You can see the stairway right there. That's where you would come in on the inside. And so now we're looking inside the Temple Mount. The big, large area on the, on the exterior portion there, that is called the Court of Gentiles, okay? That big open area right there. And you could not cross that if you were not a Jew. In fact, there's a little barrier there, and they said there were actually warnings everywhere that upon penalty of death, if you are not Jewish and you cross this, you're taking your life into your own hands, okay? Um, and then you can see the colonnades, kind of the colonnaded porch area all the way around that's called Solomon's porch and that is actually where Jesus would have been teaching. This court of the Gentiles is also where all the money changers would have been and things like that, okay? So in the middle, you can see the actual temple itself and you have a little another courtyard and we're going to actually go over to that courtyard and look down on it. So now we're looking down on that courtyard. That is called the court of women and only if you were Jewish could you go into that particular area. Okay, and then of course in front of that, there's another inner courtyard called the Court of the Priests where the main altar is along where uh, all the sacrifices took place. And then of course, you've got the temple itself. Um, now, I wanna show you what this would have looked like if you had actually gone into it yourself. Man, and, whoop, hold on. And you can actually, and this is, I know we're, we're being very, you know, nerdy this morning, but this is so cool. So you can walk in to the actual temple courtyard area. So this is the area basically that is the court of women. Uh -huh. And you can see around, it's a very, very large area. If we keep going forward, you can go into, and notice this all faces to the east. So this would have been facing the rising sun. As you go further in, most Jews would never have been allowed to go into this area. This is an area where the priests would go. To your right, 
That is where all of the sacrifices would have taken place. Notice the blood. I mean, this, this would have been like a meatpacking plant. There would have been so many sacrifices that took place there. And to your left is the actual um, altar. And it's a pretty massive structure as well. If you continue to go forward, and people at that time were not allowed to, but you could go into the holy place. And as you get inside here, you can see a menorah, which we'll be talking about this morning, the one that's uh, actually inside the temple. You've got um, the uh, incense burning, which represents the prayers of the people. And then you have a table there that is the showbread. And then there is a massive curtain right there that separates this area from the Holy of Holies, which would have been the interior area where you would have had at one time the Ark of the Covenant um, and uh, the presence of God. So we just wanted you guys to take a look at that. This is just kind of nice to be able to put a, a, a little bit of, a, of um, a little bit of a visual representation of these areas we're talking about. So, so if we could go back and just uh, pick up the calendar real quick. While, while we're doing that, making that transition, the, um, just so you'll know what we're talking about, that building took about 85 years to build. Um, it, fin it was finished in AD 64 and demolished in AD 70. Um, destroyed stone by stone six years later. The entire Temple Mount area is about 37 acres. That's 1.6 million square feet or 27 football fields. We'll go up where it is. So it's, it's large. Um, the Temple is 10 to 16. It's hard to know for sure. Stories tall. So it's somewhere between you know, 100, 120, 160, 180 feet tall. Um, here you're dealing with, we, we decided at the, pit, at the peak up there of the cupola, you're at about 80 feet. So the temple itself was twice as tall, at least twi about twice as tall as this building, um, and uh, had a lot and, more gold in it. And on a mountain. And on the mountaintop. The, 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 the literal top, because it was a mountain to begin with, but then right. they built up uh, the retaining walls all the way around right. to make this massive, massive area there on the top, which is Very kind cool. of amazing. Um, so we wanted to kind of remind you of where we were last week. Uh, what we're going to do is we, we literally only got to two um, of yep. the, the big um, you know, ceremonies last week. We started down with the Feast of Trumpets, and we got to the Day of Atonement, uh, so Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Today we're going to get to the Feast of Tabernacles. And what we'll do is we'll continue to go around um, and try to follow in order um, the, these feasts until we get to the very last one. So we'll do the Feast of Tabernacles, then we will roll around to Hanukkah, which uh, on our calendar is close to December, then we'll get to the Feast of Purim, which happens in the spring, and then eventually Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and we will close with the, uh, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. So we wanted to begin with the, um, the Feast of Tabernacles. This is my favorite. This is the one I was telling Chris. It's like, I really wish we could spend a lot of time on it because the more I read about it, the more I liked it. Mm -hmm. um, so we've just had Yom Kippur, a very, um, a very introspective, uh, very um, cerebral, uh, a, a, a time of atonement. It was a time where you dwelt on your sin. Uh, it, was a, it was a very, the, the ceremonies themselves were somewhat dark. You had the scapegoat, all those kinds of things. And after that period, you then celebrated. That's kind of the neat thing about most of these is there was always a contrast between a fast uh, over sin and a feast over the celebration of forgiveness and God's provision. So there was always, the, the two were kind of always in tension. So the Feast of Tabernacles was that. It was another feast where all uh, adult male Jews were required to come to Jerusalem. And this was one that everybody really liked. There were two big pilgrimage kind of feasts like that, one being Passover, but the other one being the Feast of Booths, which most of us don't know about. 
And uh, there's some interesting um, things about this. It's the Feast of Booths, but some of your uh, Bible translations might say the Feast of Tabernacles, Mm -hmm. which is kind of confusing because the tabernacle was the structure that was the tent where uh, they carried the Ark of the Covenant when the, when the, the, the Jews were traveling in the, in the desert, okay? But that's not what this means. Right. Um, you basically came to the city, and when you got there, you constructed, and you were given um, instructions for this, you constructed a booth to live in for eight days to remind you of what it was like to live in the desert. Now, that may sound kind of awful, um, but it, it was a time kind of for a party. People would come out, they would construct these booths, and these things would be set up everywhere, all over Jerusalem, sometimes right outside their front porch, sometimes on top of roofs. This is a picture from uh, modern-day Israel. Um, They still do this, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, And you can see some of these. Actually, um, in looking at these, some of these look a little bit more solid than I think they're actually supposed to be. Um, and, uh, but but it's, it's something that is tradition to this day. And if you look at the next slide, you see another picture there um, where they use the palm branches over the top. And, and, and so today, Jews still celebrate this. And oftentimes they celebrate meals together as family and that sort of thing. But, but this is what you did. And you came to Jerusalem, so these, these booths would have been set up everywhere. And what a, a very tactile, very physical reminder of, mm. hey, don't forget... Your ancestors lived in a desert, okay? And I know things are great now, but don't forget where you came from, right? And don't forget how God provided for you. And there's a, there's a whole lot more to the celebration that seems to have been added over time that were not actually the provisions of Scripture. But the big thing that you were supposed to remember about this is that God provided, and everybody comes to Jerusalem to celebrate and to worship um, Jehovah, this was something everybody was going to do. Oh, and oh, by the way, it was also very forward-looking. The idea was that all the nations of the earth will eventually come to Zion, and they will worship the Most High God. In fact, there's, a, there's an enormous number of sacrifices that take place that week, and when you add uh, certain groups of them together, it comes up with 70. And the significance of that, many people believe, is that this the idea of the nations that did not get the inheritance of God. Right. And the Jews literally are making sacrifices for the nations that haven't come yet. But they will. So it's, it's very forward-looking. It's very messianic in that sense. And so, but there's some, a couple of other aspects to the, the feast that Chris wanted to talk about there. So during, really the week, cool. during the week of Sukkot, of the, the feast here, <clears throat> oh, batteries running low, um, what you have is one event is called the water ceremony. So, so at some point during the week, each day to some degree, and then they had a massive expression of it, is they had this water ceremony. So everything about the Feast of Booths is a party. So just like, just like everything about the 10 days before Yom Kippur is serious, the Feast of Atonement and, and, all the, and the Day of Atonement, the great day, um, is very serious, very somber, very mourning, very, like John said, introspective, repentive, uh, penitent. Now, everything is exactly the opposite of that four or five days later, and everything turns into a party. And so normal little activities become traditions, kind of like back to A&M, like normal little stuff, right? It just, we're going to call that a tradition too. And so, they, and so what they would do is the priests would go down with this massive, like a throng of people. Everyone in the city would follow him down to the pool of Siloam. He would go down to the pool of Siloam and dip water, and he was dressed in special garb, and, and people were chanting special things, and... He had a a solid gold bowl that he would dip the water in and walk all the way back up. And this is a long walk, by the way. We've done it. Um, And walk all the way back up to the Temple Mount and then pour it, go through the water gate, the special gate just for this, and go to there and pour it into the correct 
spot for this water, not as a sacrifice, as a preparation for the sacrifices. Now, this water, had, this kind of thing had to be done on a regular basis. The priests had to go get water every day from the Pool of Siloam, probably, but they made a big deal about it. It was a huge ceremony. Everyone would gather up together. Um, the, the, trees, the priests would be walking with them with trumpets and with, with shofars and, and doing all this type of special things with that. And then they would get back and at, at, with the words of the trumpet. So as the trumpets are, are pounding out the beat, the people who are marching are chanting from Isaiah, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. And so this would be a chant. Um, the Jewish people naturally chant, um, especially the Psalms and the prophets anyway. That's why you see them at the Western Wall. And when they're praying, they're, they're doing like this at the Western Wall. Um, what they're doing is they are, they are reciting scripture. They're praying scripture and they're doing it as, as a chant um, because that's how the part of how they memorize it. You might try that with Philippians 2. By the way, it's a, um, it might help you. Um, then the second thing that was done is they had a huge, um, uh, one of the biggest nights was the ceremony of lights. So if you can imagine, they didn't, they, they didn't do these things small. Um, so we already described how massive the temple would have been. Um, John, as we were talking about this morning, referenced, so imagine you're from a town like Capernaum, and your entire town would fit in one corner of the Temple Mount. And so this is, this is you're, you're, some, a little, you're a podunk, everybody was podunk. Everyone came from a little fishing village or a little something village or a little this village. And you come to the temple <clears throat> and the area is so massive and you come up there. Well, they also have this light ceremony where they put, and there's different, there's different numbers put onto these. Um, but it could be as much as they build 150 foot platforms inside the, the women's court. So 150 foot platforms. So again, remember, that's 80 feet. So about twice as tall as the tip of this building, they built platforms that tall. And then they put a menorah up on top of that platform that may have been as much as, these are, this is a menorah, that could have been as much as 75 more feet. So now you're at about three times the height of this building, a, an oil-fed menorah, a giant menorah that they would light, and it would, all night, people would stay up and sing and dance all night. You might as well, they said, stay up all night because the menorah lit the entire city. According to legend, every single yard and every single window in the city was lit by the menorahs from the women's court. So you might as well all gather there anyway. So they would stay up all night and sing and dance and, and enjoy that celebration. Those are going on during the feast of Sukkot or tabernacles, as some of your Bibles say, or the feast of booths. That's what's going on to celebrate God bringing them through the desert to the promised land. So, you know, an interesting uh, aspect to this is there's some historians that think that the pilgrims, the, the early American pilgrims, actually were inspired to a certain degree by the Feast of Booths because when they were in exile in the Netherlands before they came to the U.S., before they came to North America, they were actually uh, neighbors with Sephardic Jews who would have celebrated this. And so when they came to the New World, when they had a time to celebrate Thanksgiving, there are some that think that at least the spirit of that was definitely part of what they were thinking. Not to mention the pilgrims all viewed themselves as God's new chosen people mm -hmm. who had separated from Pharaoh, King James, and crossed the ocean, the Red Sea. They, they very much saw themselves as kind of a new chosen people, and so this would just make sense for them. Okay? Um, so the next um, celebration that would come in the calendar would be the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, as you know it. Or as the, you know, your, most of your experience with Hanukkah might be uh, the Adam Sandler Hanukkah song, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody likes that? Um, <laughs> but uh, here's what it is. It's it, this is one of those where there is no direct reference in Scripture to this particular festival. It's not prescribed. 
It is a product of the history of the Jews that happens between the Babylonian captivity and the first century when we, when we uh, read New Testament scriptures. So this happens in 165 BC. Um, the Greeks had taken over. Uh, this is before the Romans come uh, and after the Babylonians. But it, the Greeks had taken over Judea. And, and specific Greek leaders had actually come in, desecrated the temple, made profane sacrifices, set up altars to themselves inside the temple, all this kind of stuff. And there was a revolt um, by a family referred to as the Maccabees. Now, you can read this story in uh, the apocryphal text. Um, these are books uh, that are not in uh, most Protestant uh, Bibles. Uh, that's another story entirely. But this is a historical thing that happened, okay? Uh, it's called the Maccabean Revolt. And whenever they took back the temple, they came in, they cleansed the temple out, and they rededicated the altar. And there's a story that says that when they first brought the menorah back into the temple area, when they brought it back in, they only had enough oil for one day. And you have to go through the process of getting new oil, and, and it's just, it's, it takes a while. And it was going to take eight days. Well, miraculously, as the story goes, the, the oil actually burned for eight days. And so that is why you've got the feast, and it's called the Feast of Lights. Um, oftentimes, that's our Festival of Lights, uh, is something you hear Hanukkah referred to as, uh, is about the lights of the menorah, okay? Um, and, um, and that is another ceremony whereby you had the lights. Uh, and and, and it, was, it was to commemorate victory. And it was also to commemorate the rededication of the altar. Now, a couple of interesting things about Hanukkah, though, is that there's some similarities to the Feast of Booths. Number one, the lights, the menorah. There are some that think whenever uh, Joseph Maccabus actually did this, that he did it with the Feast of Booths in mind. Because they had been celebrating the Feast of Booths for centuries at this point in time. And so that when he instituted this particular festival. He was actually thinking of the Feast of Booths. This was getting rid of a false Messiah and, and coming back to the idea of a true God, the true God. And so you've got the Festival of Lights. At the same time, there was a waving of palm branches that also happens during the Feast of Booths. That also happens during Hanukkah as well. So there's some, some overlap and some, and some similarities there. And there are some theologians that point out that the, um, that the actual day for Hanukkah um, is, is actually on Kislev, the 25th day of Kislev, um, which they think some, of the, some in the ancient church wanted to point to that as the birth date of Christ which is around December when we, and there's all sorts of reasons why we ended up with December 25th, but there's some that think they are actually pointing to that as a, a time for the rededication of the true temple, which would, of course, have been the birth of Jesus. So a couple of things about Hanukkah there. So anything else to add? No, unless you're going to talk about the, no, you said that. Okay, no, good, that covers it. <laughs> okay. Good, excellent. Okay, so now that's, that's these, these fall festivals. This is the last of the ones that happened um, during fall, and this one obviously happens during kind of wintertime uh, for us. Then you go all the way to spring. You go all the way to, for us, March. And this year it'll be on March 20th, um, uh, is the Feast of Purim, or the Fast of Purim. Purim just means lots. Um, it's, the, it's the Hebrew word that means lots. And it comes from the, this is also not prescribed in Scripture. This is not one back in Leviticus. But at some point, the Hebrew people started the celebration of the escape from um, Xerxes that, that Esther was involved in and Mordecai were involved in. And so at some point, they began to celebrate this. And we don't know if they overlapped with another ceremony. There is, there is, there is reams of paper debating exactly where the, the Feast of Purim comes from. 
But so here, here was the idea. Um, in, the, uh, in Esther 3.7, it says, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, on the 12th year of King, which is King Xerxes, um, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, the day after day, and they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. What they were doing was figuring out Haman was casting lots, rolling the dice, so to speak, to find an opportunity to have the Jewish people killed. That's what, Haman, that's what was Haman's goal. So the fact that the lots worked out the way they did, we, they actually celebrate, this is a very Jewish thing to do, and by the way, very Christian thing to do, they celebrate kind of the day that the lots fell upon them to be crucified, or to be, not crucified, but to be slaughtered, um, because it didn't happen. And so there's an ironic aspect to it. Um, so the annihilation of the Jews was supposed to come through Esther and Mordecai. God rescued them. Um, we, um, we don't often even know a lot of, of what was being done at the time of Jesus during this. Um, the Feast of Purim is never directly referenced. Some people think, or at least one person who we read thinks that the feast in John chapter 2 is Purim. Um, Jesus certainly would have been aware of it. It would have been going on in Jesus' time. But how much attention and emphasis it got is really hard to tell. What Jesus' experience would have been um, is kind of hard to tell. So um, usually the way the celebration works is um, there's, there's reading the book of Esther aloud. There's certain songs, of course, and passages that go with it. And then at some point along the way, they began burning some kind of symbol of Haman. Um, that we don't know if that was being done in Jesus' time or not, that they made kind of an effigy of Haman and then would burn that. Um, again, we don't know if that's old enough to be that part of it. Um, nowadays, by the way, um, Purim is their costume party. Um, so that was not being done in the time of Jesus, but sometime in the medieval era, um, it kind of became the Halloween. It's called the Halloween of the Jews um, because they dress up in costumes and go around and essentially get prizes and candy and stuff like that on Purim. Jesus did not do that. So just so you know, that's not, that, was, that was well after his time. Um, the only thing that struck me as interesting as well um, is that, that Adolf Hitler um, at one point wanted to make sure the Jews were imprisoned and captured before Purim because he thought they would be inspired by Purim to fight back um, against him. And so he had certain things that he wanted done before Purim the year they started the persecutions. So that struck me as fascinating, but that's it. That's all I've got on Purim. I got nothing to add. Got nothing to add. Go for it, man. Okay. Um, So now we're moving into probably the feast you're most familiar with, and that is going to be the Passover. Now, the Passover feast is going to happen in the spring, uh, and it's, as with anything else, it's based on the lunar calendar, uh, which is also, if you've ever wondered, why is Easter on a different day every spring? It's because that is one of the few times when we actually have a holiday based on the lunar calendar as well. It follows, it follow, it follows the spring, the first Sunday, af, first Sunday after a full moon after the spring equinox. I think that's right. Is, is I think how it's decided. So, so sometimes it overlaps with Passover, but it's also connected to that. So Passover would have been a feast that would have been another pilgrimage feast where the entire family would have been required to come up to Jerusalem again. This would have been much like the Feast of Booths, but this time when you came, you came with the specific purpose of, of, of offering a Passover lamb. This event was very specifically tied to the, uh, the event in Egypt where the, uh, the angel of the Lord uh, came in and, uh, and had the final plague against uh, the, the Egyptians and Pharaoh and his household. Um, and on that night... The, uh, the Jews would have uh, had a lamb and they would have put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost so that the angel of the Lord would pass over their home. 
So this was a feast in which you went to Jerusalem and you went in groups of minimum, I believe, a 10. And you actually would have a Passover lamb, which would have been an unblemished lamb that you would bring to the temple and you would sacrifice on behalf of the group you were with. Because it would have been very difficult for every single person to do that with 3 million people in the city. But you could come in these groups of a minimum of 10, and they would bring those in, they would be slaughtered, and then you would have a Passover meal. For any of you guys who have, uh, have done this with our own church, uh, every other year, that's one of the things that Chris leads. Um, it's a really, really neat uh, experience where we uh, go through all of the ceremony of the Passover meal. It involves four cups of wine and all these different foods that are all representative of what happened that night. And that is what everyone would have experienced. Mm -hmm. And so that is a a very important feast. And it begins what we would, would, would basically be a feast that follows called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I don't know if you wanted to pick up on that. Sure. Um, so the, the one thing I want to make sure that again, as we go through these passages, as you're reading through scripture, something that become confusing to us is Sabbaths. Um, so what you have are the, the weekly Sabbath that would have been Saturday um, for them, the last day of the week. And so on a, on a Saturday was a Sabbath. It was a day of rest. But then they also had periodic Sabbaths. Mm-hmm. And so within these feasts are often Sabbaths woven into them, the beginning day and the last day, or sometimes days in between will be Sabbaths. And so when you're reading Scripture, sometimes it becomes confusing to us because there will be a Sabbath, and then it feels like the very next day is a Sabbath. Well, that, that happens um, throughout. So if, if Friday is an annual Sabbath, then Saturday is still a weekly Sabbath. And so you'll get sometimes two days in a row um, where that's a Sabbath. So um, when we read through Scripture, there are going to be passages we'll run into that. I think we do in the book of John, for example. Um, but yeah, this was a, the, the millions upon millions of people. And, and as they sacrificed, according to some historians, when they would sacrifice the lambs, I think I feel like I have a number in here, but... Um, when they would sacrifice the lambs, it would, it would, the blood that would flow down, so it, 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 it took all day, and the, the priests worked in these shifts of just massive slaughter of, of these firstborn male lambs. Um, according to one historian, so down in that valley between, um, between the temple and um, the Mount of Mount Olives, of Olives mm-hmm. the valley of Kidron, um, the blood would run as deep as a horse's bridle. Um, down through that valley on Passover. So even though Passover, Passover is a celebration, but it's a very serious celebration. Um, it is, it's a reminder of God taking them out of bondage. Now, part of this is, and if you remember, so how many of you have done the Passover here or someplace else you've done a Passover? So quite a few of you. We do it again. We'll, we did it this year. We'll do it again, Lord willing, in 2020. Um, and so uh, one of the things, there's a moment when we send kids throughout the room to go find leavened bread, bread that has yeast in it, and they take it and we throw it out the door to get rid of it. Well, that begins the feast, that, that happening during the Passover meal begins the feast of unleavened bread that for the next week, the people of Israel do not eat bread with yeast in it. They eat unleavened bread only. And it's a reminder, a constant reminder of them. Again, remember how we said their catechism, their curriculum is this calendar. So it's a reminder for them to examine their lives and see, what have I allowed in my life that is not pleasing to God? Do I have relationships that don't please God? Do I have habits or addictions that don't please God? Like, what's, what's in my life that would not please God, that God would not want in my life? And the feast, this feast is a time when they analyze their lives and, and throw out anything that they might have stored up that's inappropriate in their lives. Another great reminder, just mm-hmm. like 
just like um, Yom Kippur is a reminder to reestablish relationships, this is a great one for that. And so for a week, um, essentially, they don't eat bread. There's, the people were in a hurry at the time. They couldn't let the bread rise. And the idea that nothing, they weren't supposed to take anything of Egypt with them, not the religion of Egypt or the mindsets of Egypt or any of that kind of stuff. They were to leave that stuff behind. Um, that's very, very important. So, and, and I love the idea. It's called. It's oftentimes it's it's uh, called eating the bread of affliction. Mm-hmm. But it's not that it was bad bread. It was a different bread. Right. Uh, the I once again the idea was that this is like the the bread that you ate in a hurry, but it's different. It's not like the Egyptians. Right. Uh, it doesn't have. And that's and once again, I mean, when, once you start realizing that and you start paying more attention to the things that Jesus said. When he talked about the leaven of the Pharisees and things like that, it's, it's this constant reminder uh, of, of just how these things are connected in the Jewish mind, which is um, a really neat thing. So the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread then ends a few days later, and then we, um, during that time, though, there is a, a day, um, Yom Bikrum, uh, which is the, uh, the, um, the, the, the day of first fruits. Uh, which happens during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right. uh, traditionally after the Sabbath, uh-huh. correct? And this was supposed to be an offering of the first fruits. That means the, the first of whatever it is you have, you give that to God. Um, whether it's the, the first of your livestock or it's the first of the harvest or whatever that is. Not to be confused with the feast of first fruits, which comes later. So there's this day of first fruits, which at the time of Jesus, during Jesus' uh, crucifixion, the resurrection would have happened on that day. Okay, that catch day that. of first fruits. Obviously, that's a cool piece of information, right? So the first day after the Sabbath during Passover is the feast of first fruits, where you bring your first and your best before God. And that would have been the day Jesus was resurrected from the grave. Would have been on the day of first fruits. So, nothing suspicious about that at all. Just move along. Nothing Very to see cool. here. You want me to jump into Pentecost? Do, do Pentecost. Okay. Okay. So, um, forty-nine days later, seven sevens later, or seven weeks later, you have Pentecost, uh, the um, the Feast of Harvest. Now, again, it is a challenge. We talked about this last week that the Jewish people, they, every one of these feasts have three or four names at least. And so it can be really confusing for us. It actually took, one of the things that took me the longest time was organizing all the correct names for the correct feast. Because I would read about it and be like, well, wait, what feast is that? There's like 14 feasts. There's only supposed to be eight. And, and I was counting up and it's because they use these different names. But um, so Pentecost, so after these kind of these feasts of Passover and, and first fruits and all that, they then count out these many days. Um, 50 days later, we call it Pentecost because five. So five, 50 days later, they have this, um, this one. And, and we've talked about how it, this is another pilgrimage feast, according to Deuteronomy. Um, but it was nowhere near the size and grandeur of the others. Um, they would maybe go to Jerusalem the way, if, they were, if they decided to follow that. Um, connected with the law of Mount Sinai. And it was kind of the... Last day of the feast season. It kind of, in my opinion, it kind of plays the same role as, say, New Year's Day. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the holiday season starts with, with Thanksgiving, or unless you count Halloween or whatever. And then, you know, it kind, of, it kind of starts here, and it's really big at Christmas. And then the last day is kind of this day in New Year's Day. And then you're, you're kind of wrapped up the holiday. That's the end of the holiday season. Or as we talked about last time, when you pay mm-hmm. your credit card bill. That's the last day <laughs> of the holiday season. Um, 
In fact, a, they, they even called it Feast of Conclusion. That's right. right. That, another so, one, another of, one of the days, right? <laughs> yep. Um, so there's a few things that are connected to this, like they would reference Song of Songs, uh, the, the Song of Solomon passage. They would eat milk and honey as a reminder of coming into the promised land and that God's good things are like milk and honey. Um, in the first century, David's birth, King David's birth was believed to have been on this day, on Shavuot or the, 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 the Pentecost. And so they would double up that celebration. The celebration of, of this would also include the celebration, allegedly, and he died on that day as well. Um, and so they would celebrate King David a lot of times. A lot of this was stuff added in later, but as we've talked about, this is kind of how this plays, plays into the storyline. Um, anything to add that you have on this feast? No, just that um, in, in being the conclusion, we, we're constantly, and, and the, the church adopted this as well, we're mm-hmm. constantly reliving the life of Israel. I mean, every year you're going through the process of, of bondage, rescue, wandering, and then arrival in the, in the promised land. Uh, and, and, and specifically, this particular feast was about the giving of the law. And that's why it was considered so important. It's like, I rescued you. I've now given you the law. And so there's this, like, this, mm-hmm. this consummation, this now live, now live like this. Um, so that's all for that particular there you go. feast. So, um, so, do you want me to go ahead and... Yeah, yeah, uh, start um, wrapping up, and then so, I'll close this up. This is the thing, as I was thinking about all of these, what, what, what is significant about them, the things that have really jumped out to me, is um, how genius, and of course, of God, to give his people these feasts and festivals. It's a combination, though. It's not just feast, um, but there were times of fasting and mourning, but it's not just fasting and mourning. So what he's done is he's literally given um, the Jews an opportunity to remember where they suffered, to remember where they sinned, to remember where they came from, so that they remember what they were rescued from, so that their past could make sense. They've been rescued out of that, so that they could live in gratitude in the present, so that they could know, but also it was a feast, to celebrate that and also to look forward, especially, you know, as I, as I thought about the Feast of Booths, this is one of the most forward-looking of all these things. Mm-hmm. And in order to, to, to live well in the present, this is what I wanted to ask you as, as, as a therapist. It's mm-hmm. like, how important is it for you to make sense of your past? Mm-hmm. How, is it, how important is it to make sense out of your suffering, right? And this was a way for God to help their suffering, their, their bondage, in Egypt, um, to make sense, but also to give them a profound sense of gratitude for, I rescued you. I picked you out. In fact, I I, I wrote it this way, you know, where the the Jews could say, look at the trauma of my past. Look what happened to me. And God says, I know, I'll heal it. Look, look Look, I was in slavery. Do you understand? I know, I rescued you. But look at my wandering. I was lost. You know, you're right. And I found you and I guided you. Look at my poverty. I had nothing. And, and look, I gave you provision. I was hopeless. You're right. And I've given you hope. And is that not the Christian message? Mm-hmm. Is that not what Christ offers us? And, and I think God was foreshadowing all of this in these feasts and festivals. So. That's, really, that's really cool. And I'd, I feel like that's some of what we do and what we want to do here. It's part of why we... Um, for example, the ministry huddle we'll do in a few weeks is, the, is emphasizing some of that, looking back and looking forward. It's such a powerful picture for us. And as a therapist, I, I will just tell you, it is, 
It is vital that your past makes sense, that you integrate that into the reality of where you've come and where you've, who you are and what that means. That's the powerful terminology, what that means. How do I interpret this? And so that's, that's part of what we look to Scripture to do to help us interpret. And when we do the, the, the um, uh, sacred acts, the behaviors, the activities, the rites of passages in our family, the birthday parties, or, the, or whatever it is that you do to celebrate, which I highly recommend that you be intentional, moms and dads and grandmothers and grandfathers, sit down and say, where do we want to take our family? What do we want to remember as a family? What do we want to be looking forward to as a family? And how are we making that happen? Um, the best research indicates that couples, for example, who tell the story of how they met and how they fell in love and how they got married are, are significantly more likely to stay married for the rest of their lives than couples who don't ever tell their story. Um, there's something about this um, that when you get to talk about, here's, here's what we went through, here were the goods and the bads and the highs and the lows, um, I think it's healthy. And when we as Christians are able to integrate God, obviously, the truth that God was at work in all of that. That as you, as you will memorize in Philippians chapter 2, though we are, quote, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, it's God who's at work. It's at God who's at work in this. So it's, it's amazing to be able to interpret and understand, even when we don't understand, to be able to acknowledge God was at work. I may not be able to see yet how. I may not be able to see yet why, but God was at work. That's, that's powerful stuff. And so for us, as we are going through the same things in our lives, as we look back on our lives um, and we go through our, our own Yom Kippur. So there's a way to say, where, where, what's broken in my relationships? What do we need to deal, get forgiveness in? Or when we go through our own Sukkot and say, wow, we faced some hard things and let's celebrate the fact that we've made it through. Or when we do baptism and we say, buried with Christ in death, looking back at what Christ did for us, but resurrected to walk forward in the newness of life as we look forward. With, with communion, when we take communion and we say, um, that his, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. Do this in remembrance of me, looking back. And as you do this, continue to do this until I return. Remembering me until I come back, looking forward. This is God is hardwiring this into us and what we needed as well. So just as a, as a consideration, as you, when you leave today and you go to lunch or whatever, as a family, maybe, maybe it's a good idea to ask the question, what are we doing intentionally to look back and to look forward. And um, what are we doing about that to communicate that? Big picture, regularly, small time, whatever. So I really want to encourage us as a church. We're trying to figure out how to do that more and more and better and better all the time. Um, as families, which is the real core of Christian community, to be doing that. So anyway, this has been really fascinating. I wish, I wish we could share all that we had researched. It would take many, many more weeks to even begin to scratch that. Um, if this, again, if this stuff is interesting to you, let, let us know and we'll happily send you our resources. Um, or, you know, maybe John will, will do a Bible study on it at some point or, uh, or something like that. So not to set him up for that. But the, um, uh, anyway, well, I want, I want to pray and close out our time. I hope that God is working in you even to integrate the reality of, what's of your past into the, the, the truth of his provision. Um, no matter how awful that, can, that may have been. And the Jews are a great example of it can be awful. Um, there's no such promise, but, um, but the promise is that he won't leave us or forsake us, that he will bring us through and he has a future for us. So let me pray. Father, we're so grateful for your goodness, um, even when our lives don't seem very good. We're thankful um, for your intentionality in our lives, um, even when it looks like chaos to us. Um, God, I know that we don't always get to see what it is you're doing, how you're doing it, or, and certainly not why you're doing it. 
Um, God, I, and, and I know that you're a, you're a big enough God to be able to accept our hurt feelings and our anger and our frustration, um, even directed at you. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm proud that you're the kind of God who's not afraid of my temper tantrums or my authentic confusion or my frustration. Um, God, I thank you that you model that for us through your word. And God, I thank you that, that through these feasts and these festivals that we can be challenged in the same way. As we look at these things, as you encouraged your people, look back on this, look forward to this. And I pray you will teach us to do the same thing, that we're not just running or scurrying around, responding whatever the, the crisis of the moment is, but instead we're being intentional about planting our feet and looking back at what you've done. Thank you, God, that you sent your son, that you created man. You have no obligation to do any of these things for us, but you did. And God, you have promised us a victory in the end, that your son will return someday. I thank you that you've made those promises, and we look forward to that in your son's name. Even so, Lord, come quickly. Amen.